Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. On this week's show, John Bedow talks to Lester Brown, who's the president of the Earth Policy Institute and the man who alerted the world to the environmental dangers of biofuels. Now he claims to know how to save the planet. The sort of standard uh, goal now of cutting carbon emissions 80% by 2050, I say to myself, you know, the game's going to be over long before that. Ahead of George Bush's climate change conference, now there's a contradiction in terms, we ask climatologist Robert Henson whether anything will come out of it. I would be surprised if that meeting emerges this week with anything like um, mandatory cut guidelines for countries, at least including the US. And it's back to Britain for the campaign of the week, right in the middle of a protest against Heathrow's proposed third runway. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. Before we look at some recent environment headlines, let's introduce our fearsome team who will be discussing them. First, we have Guardian Environment Editor John Vidal. And Rebecca Smithers is here too. You're our Consumer Affairs Correspondent. Just quickly, what's given you both green rage this week? Something that's made you environmentally mad. John. I'm I'm just boiling at Shell's obscene profits. Unbelievable. I don't mind the profits so much for the fact that they're they're not clearing up what's going on with the Niger Delta, the gas flaring around the world. Uh, It's just just outrageous. Well, related to that, actually, I've just heard from a friend of mine that Shell are actually going into schools, into primary schools in particular, and giving presentations about how they reckon they can teach uh, various parts of of the curriculum better than teachers can themselves. This is causing outrage amongst uh, parents, understandably. And it just reminds reminds me of those sort of days about 20 years ago when Tate and Lyle would, would send in sort of packs about sugar into schools. So I think that's slightly worrying if, if companies are, tr- are starting to hijack the, uh, the school curriculum again. So we'll have to keep an eye on that, I think. Yeah, very much so. I'm sure we'll come back to that in a later show. Well, glad you've both got that off your chests. Breathe deeply and right onto our first headline. Biologist claims significant step towards artificial life. The controversial biologist and entrepreneur, Craig Venter, has announced the creation of a synthetic chromosome. But why is this of interest to environmentalists? Well, it's because these stripped-down designer organisms have huge potential for creating alternative sources of energy and fuel, or tackling climate change by soaking up carbon dioxide. Brilliant! But should such far-reaching biotechnology be developed by a private company whose motive is profit, John? Well, I think it's going to be it's going to go that way anyway, and uh, so there's uh, these these developments are very natural. Uh, how to control them? I don't think it will stop them. They're out there. The genie's out of the bottle. Um, the question is, would he actually try and help the environment, or is this a, another uh, development, or, or, or um, is is it going somewhere else? And the answer is, we don't know yet, and we just have to wait and see. Rebecca, I mean, does this really matter who who develops it? And we've already got modern agriculture creating new strains of crops that are bug-resistant, chickens that fatten quicker. Is this so different? Uh, it is different. I think it does matter because um, my view is we can't just have individuals going out on a limb, sort of ploughing their own furrows, pardon the pun, um, almost sort of um, doing their own thing as, as if on a, a set from the Avengers. I don't think that's a good idea. We need to have some sort of government regulation. And you've, got, you've just got to look at what's happened with, with animal cloning. Now increasing worries about nanotechnology, which is used in a, a, a lot of products that are sold on the, he- on the high street in cosmetics. We just don't know what companies are doing. We don't know what the longer term um, effects are on our health. So I think it needs to needs to be watched very closely. 
Well, not surprisingly, the subject has generated a heated debate on the blogs. First, this from No Surrender Monkey. There's a looming global energy crisis that threatens to plunge millions into poverty and starvation. Here is a man trying to find a means of averting the disillusion of human civilization. If he succeeds, future generations will be erecting shrines to him. It is utterly ridiculous to suggest such research should be at the mercy of endless public debate. Given the severity of the hardship we may soon be facing, I would say practically any risk is worth taking. This is a deeply serious issue which deserves a proper debate. Manipulating the natural world in the form of agriculture, particularly cattle farming, is what has accelerated climate change in the first place. If biotechnology could be used responsibly, it could help us. Up until now, it's made a few people disgustingly rich while impoverishing many, so extreme caution seems a logical response to me. Whether we destroy ourselves through cheap Ryanair flights, nuclear waste, particle accelerators or nanotechnology, somebody somewhere will make a, no pun intended, killing on it. And let's face it, although we now recognise the threats facing us and things have improved, we're a species still hopelessly addicted to technology. Are we really going to say no to this latest development, especially when it's going to prove so lucrative and promises so much? And you can join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. The big McMakeover, how McDonald's bounced back. McDonald's has reinvented itself as a more eco-friendly company and it's now selling more burgers than at any time since it arrived in Britain 34 years ago. Its green initiatives include only selling sustainable coffee certified by the Rainforest Alliance, turning its cooking oil into biodiesel to power its lorries, paying 5% above the market rate for beef and pork to help British farmers, and most surprisingly, only selling organic milk. Its restaurants are also being given what looks like a green facelift with green-coloured designer seats and sofas. John, you wrote a book about the McLibel trial when McDonald's sued two environmental activists who eventually won their case. That arguably was the beginning of the company's downfall in the late 90s. Is this reinvention a, a clever example of greenwash? Well, I don't think McDonald's has, uh, has has fallen down at all. I think if you compare the number of uh, restaurants they had then and now, it's infinitely more, and they're moving into more and more countries. Um, and it is greenwash in a way. I mean, they, they are uh, they, they've invested a lot of money in uh, uh, greening up, and but it's it's frankly not good enough. I mean, it's like they're still uh, selling enormous quantities of the, the obesity uh, problems they've got, the waste problems they've got, the water they're using. Everything doesn't add up to an environmental benefit. It is, it is, it is seriously still out of order. But isn't this a good start, Rebecca? I mean, shouldn't they get some credit? I mean, they've got such huge clout that the fact they're actually doing something, surely that's, that's positive. Yes, I agree. I, th- I think that the company should be applauded for, for making quite considerable efforts. I think my point would be is that you, one has a choice of going into lots of different outlets if you want to have coffee made from sustainable beans with organic milk. There, there are lots of options out there on the high street. I personally don't find the whole McDonald's eating experience very relaxing or very enjoyable. I also don't like burgers, although I think McDonald's salads are not, are not too bad. Um, it's interesting that they've been doing a lot more on, on, on 
training as well. And this week they've they've been accredited um, as able to uh, to grant A levels and other qualifications to their staff. But um, I just think in the longer term, they that there's there's a long way to go. But I think their credit where credit's due. Personally, I'm not a McDonald's fan, but I will force myself to go into one of the, the new the, the green new look outlets, of which quite a few are springing around in this part of London. John, will you be visiting one? No, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me clear. <laughs> uh, I find the whole thing absolutely uh, so grotesque and so awful. The, you know, the treatment of animals, the the it was right away across the board. The whole model of of a of a of a vast corporation like like McDonald's and uh, the way it uh, it treats the environment is it's, it's not good enough just to say they're greeting up. It's uh, they have to rethink the whole thing. But isn't the difference now that they're, they're no longer the bogeyman of the high street, which they undoubtedly were ten years ago? I think perceptions have changed. Perceptions are changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did notice in today's paper that uh, McDonald's uh, uh, lost £800 million pounds off its, uh, in America uh, last year. So it may be that uh, this whole model is, is just not good enough. Blaming carbon on planes is flight of fancy, the Times. And Britain's new eco-battle, cries the Observer, about Heathrow's third runway. So a question for you. Which is worse for the environment, cars or aircraft? If you think it's planes, then you're among the 40% of people who, when questioned last August for a survey by the National Statistics Office, said planes were more environmentally damaging. The right answer is actually cars, but only 34% said that. The Times blames high-profile campaigns by anti-aviation groups for spreading this ignorance. John, are they right? Well, that particular survey was done right after the big protests at Heathrow, so it's kind of natural that people would say that. But I think there is a huge amount of ignorance uh, generally, um, and the anti-aviation groups have played to it uh, very, very strongly. And the argument that that green groups should be looking at at cars doesn't really what aviation is the fastest growing. I think this quite quite natural and quite right in a way that they should be uh, going for aviation. Rebecca, what, what do you think? I know Ruth Kelly, the transport. Secretary said that if Heathrow doesn't build a third runway, then more planes will just land in Amsterdam instead, so it won't actually be of any benefit to the planet at all. That's a good point, but I, I still think in terms of road transport, um, we're a nation, we're wedded to our cars. Um, you know, it's not a matter of uh, flying or driving. Most of us do both, and do both in quite substantial uh, quantities. I, I, I think really the, the, the campaign against road building um, to enc- encourage households to have uh, fewer cars, I, I think there's, there's really really a missed opportunity there for campaigners. So I'd like to see um, a, bi- a big drive against um, the use of cars so that the, actually the roads um, are safer for pedestrians and for cyclists. I think, I think technology actually will come to the rescue a bit here. I'm not a great technology man, but I think the way cars are going, the way uh, uh, they're changing, the way uh, it, it, it's, it's completely going to redraw the, the whole map. We're never going to give up our cars. Uh, we just have to accept that. So we need much, much better cars, and they are coming. But how many electric cars do we see on the streets at the moment? I mean, I still think they're such a novelty, aren't they, that when, yes. you see, when you see one parked or when you see a huge man climbing into one, <laughs> as I did this morning, it does take you by surprise. You kind of think, oh, that looks a bit unusual. And I think that's because there's still a novelty factor. You know, it's going to take some time for them to become a, ma- a, a mainstream form I think of transport. They will. That, I but think that I, will I'm happen. Sure yeah, will. well, let's hope so. First, there was barley. Now, George Bush is having his own climate change conference. He's invited delegates from around the world to his two-day beach party in Hawaii. Leading climatologist Robert Henson has just written the Rough Guide to Climate Change. 
The Guardian's environment correspondent, David Adam, has asked him about what these talks are likely to achieve. But first, he has some tips on how we can do our bit to reduce CO2. One in particular is on, on water bottles and, and bottled water uh, that you buy at the store, um, ready-made, as it were. And just what a, a climate nightmare that is um, in so many aspects. Um, you, you know, it's put into plastic bottles, of course, that are made using petroleum. Then the water is often chilled and shipped great distances, and the bottles, of course, enter a landfill. Um, so it's just so many ways it adds to, to the, uh, a person's climate footprint if you're drinking one of these every day or two. So uh, what the one, I guess the one tip I really uh, encourage people to do is to, to use, reuse their own water bottles. And this is something that really since the first edition and second edition really um, loomed large for me. Mm, that seems fair enough. But apart from uh, not buying their bottled water, what else should people do or, or could they do that's quite simple? Well, here's one that you don't hear very, discuss very much, um, and that's uh, trying to focus any flying you have to do during the daytime. Um, a lot of times people will take red-eye flights uh, if they're business travelers and so forth, but um, as best we can tell, the, the um, climate effect of a flight is much greater if you take it at night. And the main reason is because um, contrails, the, the clouds that are spit out behind planes, actually reflect sunlight during the day, but, which tends to cool the climate, but they don't have that effect at night. And that helps to compensate for the greenhouse gases and for the energy from the earth radiating out that these clouds trap uh, 24 hours a day. So the bottom line is that you, you might be able to cut the climate impact of your flight by a substantial amount if you just keep it during daylight hours. And again, you don't hear that very much because there hasn't been a lot of research on this, but it makes intuitive sense. And one study a couple of years ago in Nature found that I think it was something like 80 or 90 percent of the impact of all of Southeast England's um, flights, about 80 or 90 percent of the climate impact was due to something like um, 20 or 25 percent of the flights, and those were the ones that occurred at night. So. Well, that almost sounds a bit too good to be true. We're just yeah, it, does. <laughs> it does almost sound like you're, you're getting something for nothing. But, but the idea is, is not to all of a sudden fly more, but, but the flights that you are taking anyway, that if you focus on by day, uh, that can help you a lot. And I think, uh, you know, there's almost like a, a resistance to things that are so easy and practical. Uh, it almost seems, seems like we should have to work to uh, <laughs> reduce our footprint. But uh, there are some really smart and easy ways. Um, Ironically, depending on what speed you're traveling, it can be better to have the AC on in your car than to have the windows down. Uh, if you're flying along on the highway, having your windows down can actually induce some air resistance that can you know, increase its demand for gasoline. So, right. um, it's not a big it, problem in Britain right now to have the air conditioning on in the car. <laughs> I was going to say, we're looking ahead here. <laughs> Well, one place lots of uh, politicians will be taking direct flights to this week is Hawaii. Um, this is where George Bush's uh, major emitters conference is taking place. It's the first, I suppose, uh, international climate meeting uh, since the uh, the drama that happened in Bali before Christmas. Is it a big deal in the States? Is it, is it all over the newspapers this week? Uh, you would be amazed to know that it's, it's barely a blip, and I think that's mainly because of uh, our election cycle, which is amazingly heated, uh, probably about as contentious and, and up in the air as I've ever seen it in my life here. So, so that is completely dominating the news. I, I haven't seen a, a peep about <laughs> the Hawaii meeting, but obviously it's an important one. Um, it's, it's interesting how that major economies meeting process is going um, in kind of parallel with Kyoto. I would be surprised if, if that meeting emerges this week with anything like um, mandatory guideline, you know, mandatory cut guidelines for countries, at least including the U.S. But it will be interesting to see what comes out because, of course, uh, things did get contentious in, in Bali, and uh, we, 
you know, that meeting ended up by the skin of its teeth with an agreement to keep working on an agreement. That was Robert Henson talking to David Adam. He has some interesting tips there, Rebecca. Do you think we should all ditch the bottled water? We absolutely should ditch all bottled water. And uh, I'm going to start my own personal campaign, I think. Um, There are no nutritional or health benefits from drinking bottled water. It's expensive. It's damaging to the environment. Um, I would like to see the restaurant industry um, um, sort of basically encouraging people to drink tap water in restaurants rather rather than trying to sell them expensive bottles of water on which there's obviously a huge market markup and a huge profit for them and it's interesting that um that yesterday we've had a sort of pledge from the 21 biggest food and drink companies to try and cut back water usage across across the industry it's not clear whether they're going to give people smaller jugs on their tables but we'll have to wait and see and john um he mentioned this uh, timing of your flights better what does that sound like to you it sounds like complete rubbish, actually. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the only good timing for a flight is not to take it at all. I last, last week, I saw Prince Charles as a hologram, and it was amazing. And, I, and here was the future. And, uh, and, and when uh, conferences start to hologram each other, uh, then I think uh, it, it, we are really going to get somewhere. But, but just trying to cut out a, a night flight or take an eye, it's, just, it's too complex and it's just rubbish. <laughs> and what about Hawaii? Are we expecting much to come out of that? No, nope. Absolutely nothing at all. (laughs) Okay, well, if you like what you've just heard from Rob Henson, you'll be interested to know that the science team have been talking to Gabriel Walker, who's written a book called How to Tackle Global Warming and Still Keep the Lights On. That's on the latest edition of Science Weekly at guardian.co.uk slash podcast. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we get the latest on Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly campaign, and we hear from a man described by the Washington Post as one of the world's most influential thinkers. Not a bad line for your CV, eh? The reality is if this trend keeps accelerating, the Greenland ice sheet could disappear. If that happens, sea level rises 23 feet. So it's a race between ice melting on the one hand and phasing out coal-fired power plants on the other. And we don't know yet who's, who's going to win. Now, back to the aviation theme for our campaign of the week. The fight between environmentalists and big business over the proposed third runway at Heathrow is being called Britain's new eco-battle. And it's stepped up a gear this week. My name is Anna Jones and I'm from Greenpeace and I'm down in central London outside the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre near Parliament. And we're down here because the government is holding the last of its exhibitions as part of its consultation on Heathrow expansion. And we're here to say that this isn't a consultation, this is a fix. It's a complete sham designed to get through the decision they've already made, which is to expand Heathrow Airport and to almost double the number of flights going in and out of Heathrow. Expanding Heathrow to that level would be a complete disaster for the climate. Experts say that that's simply not sustainable and that if we're to avoid climate disaster, we really need to be cutting the flights and keeping emissions down. We're not saying that people can't take flights, but what we're saying is that the government policy at the moment is encouraging flights which are just unsustainable. And the aviation industry is not bearing the true costs of flying, so that flying is so cheap, which is encouraging more people to take weekend breaks away. And most of those people who are taking those kinds of flights 
are in the upper band, so that's the upper and middle classes. In doing that, they're actually creating a tourism deficit, so a lot of money is actually being spent outside of the UK, which is not contributing to our economy, so that the idea that expanding the number of flights will contribute to, to the UK economy is just rubbish. There's a £17 billion tourism deficit, and that's because the aviation industry isn't bearing the true cost of flying. People need to be saying no to airport expansion, if they're going to get involved with the consultation, they need to be saying that the consultation isn't, isn't consulting on the true questions, which are, is this going to be a sustainable thing to do? And we're saying it's not a sustainable for the climate. To expand the extent that they're talking about, we would have to make our economy zero carbon in every other sector, and that's just not going to happen. That was Greenpeace at a demo against Heathrow's expansion. And if you know of any green campaigns in the UK or further afield that we should feature on this podcast, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Next, Bill Clinton said we should all heed this man's advice. Lester Brown is the founder of the Earth Policy Institute in the US and a titan in the environmental movement. He's written several hugely influential books on global eco-issues. The most famous, Plan B, brought together research on multiple crises and laid out a step-by-step plan for a transition to a green economy. It's just been revised and expanded, and John Vidal asked him why we need Plan B version 3. Plan B is, um, as, as the term implies, uh, an alternative to Plan A. Plan A is business as usual, and uh, business as usual has got us into, into pretty serious trouble. Um, you, you look at the list of environmental trends in the world from soil erosion to ice melting, and we're, we've got problems. And uh, I don't think we've yet quite grasped the dimensions of these problems and the urgency of uh, responding to them. And one of the things that, that I've done in Plan B 3.0 is to look at the relationship between um, environmental and population trends, for example, and uh, failing states. And uh, what we see is that the list of failing states is getting longer each year. And that raises a, an interesting and, and uh, somewhat scary question, which is how many failing states before we have a failing civilization? You write in the book that we're in a race uh, between tipping points in nature and our political systems. What, what exactly do you mean there? Well, if, if you look at some of the major sort of environmental trends now, like ice melting, for example, and you look at what's happening in Greenland and, 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 and the sort of things that you were reporting um, late last summer in late August and early September about the extraordinary, unprecedented um, uh, rate of melting and, and glacial flow um, that we were witnessing there. I mean, the reality is if this trend keeps accelerating, the Greenland ice sheet could disappear. If that happens, sea level rises 23 feet. So it's a race between ice melting on the one hand and phasing out coal-fired power plants on the other. And we don't know yet who's, who's going to win. And, and politically, it's going to be uh, demanding. You say our political systems are, uh, are... Are they inadequate at the moment, or are they up to the job? I and mean, what, what could happen? Social change... Um, comes very abruptly sometimes. I mean, I think of the Berlin Wall coming down. I mean, that was a, a visual manifestation of a, a, of a political revolution in Eastern Europe, an essentially bloodless political revolution. 
but it wasn't anticipated. I mean, by November of 1989, we had crossed a key sort of social threshold in Eastern Europe, and everything changed uh, very quickly. I go back to World War II and, and the change that occurred in this country. I mean, we desperately wanted to stay out of the war if we could. Um, we, the American people, uh, I think Roosevelt knew uh, uh, long before Pearl Harbor that we were going to have to get involved one way or another. But it was, it, it was interesting because if you conducted a poll in this country on December 6th, Saturday, December 6th, 1941, and asked the American people, do you want to go to war? 95% would have said no. But if you'd waited till Monday, December 8th, after Pearl Harbor, um, and asked that same question, that, 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 that response would have flipped, and 95% would have said yes. What is going to flip the, uh, the present uh, uh, situation? Is it, are you talking about an ecological catastrophe, which will change people's views yeah. on this? Will it be a Pearl Harbor? Will that sort of be the, the, the model of a single event that suddenly changes everything? Maybe, but I, I, I don't know what it might be. Or will it be a gradual thing that, that suddenly pushes us over a threshold, um, you know, uh, in terms of, 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 of public uh, thinking and, and concerns, and, and then something like the Berlin Wall comes down? I have a feeling it's going to be the accumulation of a number of different things. The irony surely is, Lester, that we won't do anything until, we, until it is effectively too late for us to do anything. That's the risk. I mean, in, in, in effect, these, these natural thresholds, like the, the melting of glaciers and reaching the point of no return, are, are not known to us. These are determined by nature. And that makes nature the timekeeper, but we can't see the clock. We don't know exactly how much time we have left. And that, that sort of, to me, increases the, uh, um, the urgency of the situation. We, we can't gamble our future away. But your book, Plan B3, uh, version 3, it's, it's basically saying there is an answer, there is a solution, and we can do something. What do, what do you propose immediately? For example, in looking at ice melting, Losing the, the glaciers in the Himalayas on the, and on the Tibetan Plateau that feed the major river systems of Asia um, with, with ice melt during the dry season to keep them flowing. I mean, these are, these are huge uh, um, challenges we're facing. When I look at this and the sort of standard uh, goal now of, of, of politicians of cutting carbon emissions 80% by 2050, I, I say to myself, you know, the game's going to be over long before that. And, and, and that's why we have put together a plan to cut carbon emissions 80% by 2020. And if we succeed in doing that, we'll hold atmospheric CO2 concentrations just under 400 parts per million. And if we can do that by 2020, then we can start reducing atmospheric CO2. Lester Brown there talking to John Vidal. Plan B version 3, Mobilising to Save Civilization" is just out. Finally, Jessica Aldred's here to tell us about a small step we can all take to save the planet. This week's Tread Lightly pledge is to reuse plastic bags. Now, this doesn't save as much carbon as some of the transport or energy pledges, but it does help to reduce waste, and it's an easy thing to commit to doing. Nearly 4,000 of you have saved a total of 40 tonnes of carbon dioxide since Tread Lightly launched last year. That's enough to turn off a coal-fired power station for 15 minutes, so keep up the good work. You can sign up for this pledge on Friday at www.guardian.co.uk forward slash tread lightly. And here's what you had to say about last week's pledge, which was to turn off lights in empty rooms. 
The first poster wants to give his neighbours some advice on leaving their external lights all night. What can I do to politely remind them that they're wasting electricity and not doing the planet much good either, he asks. Another user posting on the blog is asking whether people really need to be told to switch off lights when they're not in use. He wonders whether some people should go back to school on the topic. How about introducing switching off lights into the national curriculum, he asks. Last person out of any classroom switches off the lights. Students could rotate in alphabetical order to be the last one out, he suggests, which might also teach some of them the alphabet. And if you want to share tips on this week's pledge, or you want to suggest a future pledge, log on to blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash ethical living and have your say. So last week the lights went off, and this week it's reusing plastic bags. Rebecca, do you do that already? I do, and I have to say I'm very obsessive about it. I usually have a couple of um, sort of supermarket bags for life, which I have folded up in my sort of work bag, so that if I nip out to do a quick bit of shopping on the way back from a press conference, I can always um, can always use one of those. Sadly, one of them got left on a train <laughs> <laughs> last week going to Norwich, so I'm I'm still battling to get it back from uh, lost property. But that's another story about uh, about consumer complaints. Um, I, and going back to what you were saying earlier about things that really annoy me, that's going into Sainsbury's and just seeing. The sort of re, the sort of sheaths of orange plastic bags just being pulled off, mm. and people using them. I still think it's very disappointing. Although bag carrier bag usage generally is going down, we can all do our bit there, definitely. Yeah. John, plastic bags. I've got the best of the world. I have been better. I I uh, I go to remission occasionally, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm learning. I'm it's learning. difficult to remember always, isn't it? I think Rebecca's idea of always having something in your bag that you folded up, yeah. folded up, yeah. is, is really good. I'm Chaps gonna, don't I'm... always have bags. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the, the the problems with the Hessian bags, which are very nice and organically, you know, very 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 um, eco friendly, but they're not very they're not very handy for folding mm. up. So not very good in the rain either. Definitely not. No, get a bit smelly. Don't <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to John Vidal and Rebecca Smithers and to my producer, Andy Duckworth. Don't forget to give us your feedback. Click on blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Guardian Unlimited.